You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. All right. On today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Lara Barros, who is an occupational therapist at the Niles Township District for Special Education in Illinois. Laura, you have amazing experience in school-based practice, cognitive behavioral therapy, the cognitive orientation to daily occupational performance or co-op approach, assistive tech, interprofessional collaboration, and evidence-based practice. An extensive list, to say the least. And I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today to share some of that experience and expertise with us. Um, Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Of course, it's our pleasure. Laura, to, to get to know you a little better off the bat, I want to ask what initially motivated you to seek a career in school-based occupational therapy? Um, well, to be honest, I actually kind of fell into school-based occupational therapy. I um, was finishing my master's degree and actually was in a combined master's PhD program and just really missed being with kids. And my advisor knew somebody who needed help in the schools and there we go. I started doing evaluations and then um, kind of fell in love with the school. I love that. I love that. Can you give our listeners a brief overview of what OT's role is in working with school-aged children? Yeah. So working in the schools, really the OT's um, role is to support the student in their performance of just really anything they need to do at school. So like routines or any school-related occupations. And I always tell my teachers that I work with that it really is, I have I have no goals other than the ones that they have for their kid. I just am there to help support them in doing that. And after 25 years of clinical practice in, in the schools, you completed your third degree in occupational therapy and an OTD degree. What motivated you to pursue a post-professional OTD? I'm sure this is a, probably a big question for people. Why would you go back for three degrees in OT? And really it came um, from just the the population I had started working with was um, had changed a little bit rather than just focusing on motor. I've seen a lot more kids with kind of regulation issues, uh, handling their emotions. And I just was kind of not sure how, how to deal with them effectively and how to, you know, how to support them the best way. So I was... Um, looking for a way to, to help support those kids and help them be more successful. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And it, it, I think it tells a lot about your character in wanting to provide the, the best possible services and, and lead to the best outcomes for um, the clients that you work with. Um, so, so kudos to you, <laughs> Laura. Um, and a, another background on um, working in the school system, just for myself and other listeners who haven't really been exposed to school-based practice much, what does the day-to-day kind of look like? Are you working with a whole a whole district of schools? Is there a couple schools that you're seeing clients from? Or how does it all really work logistically? Yeah, well, in, in my case, um, basically, I'm employed by um, a, a special education co-op, right, which I think is maybe semi-unique to um, Illinois in general. But they... Um, I, but I physically work in a district that pays for fee for service. So almost like a, I guess like a contract agency, but we're all affiliated with the schools. So um, I work in one district um, primarily. And then I also um, 
see some kids in our special ed co-ops um, classrooms, which are primarily located within neighborhood schools. So from day to day, I, I, I'm physically in five different buildings um, throughout the week. And so from day to day, I could be in, an, you know, some of the times I'm there in an elementary school all day in one school. Sometimes I switch like half day, but um, I'm lucky enough to have been in the same districts um, for, oof, I don't even know, maybe 10 years or so, or even more so that it's, I could build some relationships. I know some people don't have it quite that lucky. Awesome. That's awesome. Thank you for kind of painting a picture. Um, I know that's really helpful for me with not understanding exactly how um, school-based practice uh, uh, works in that way. Um, but it sounds like an amazing way to get a, a depth of experience and work with a lot of different clients in, in a community. And a, as part of your um, OTD, you developed Co-op Principles for Participation, an evidence-based guide for implementation for using the principles of co-op to frame a top-down approach with school-aged children. Um, and we want to focus a lot of this interview on this guide that you created today. But before we, we dive into that, where or how do you envision that listeners could access this guideline in the future? The plan would be to somehow disseminate this for free to people so that they could access it after I figured out how to um, share it with copyrighted or in some way so that it, it is um, not taken and used by another individual. Of course, of course. Can you give us some more background about co-op? Really, kind of, what is co-op? What populations is it recommended for? Um, well, co-op is, um, like you said, the co- it's labeled, you know, titled The Cognitive Orientation to Daily Occupational Form Performance. And it was originally um, developed for um, children with developmental coordination disorder. And it's now been studied with, um, you know, with, well, across across age groups within for a, an over a number of different kinds of diagnoses like autism, cerebral palsy. Um, but that list is just growing and growing. So basically co-op is a, um, it's a complex intervention and it's, you know, to put it like as simply as I can, it's, you know, it's evidence-based, it's client-centered, and it's focused on improving occupational performance through um, kind of a series of performance-based observation and guided discovery, which we'll talk about later. Yes, I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing from you about some of those um, principles of co-op that, that are included um, in this principles for participation guide. You mentioned a couple of them. What, what other principles or um, main takeaways or applications of co-op are included in this guide? So there's seven um, principles or key features of co-op. The first one is it's client-centered. The second principle is using dynamic performance analysis cognitive strategy use, uh, guided discovery, enabling principles, having the um, support of an adult, and um, the intervention format in which it's provided. Awesome. And like you mentioned, we're going to talk a little bit more about these principles as, as conversation progresses. Could you speak to us about what a top-down approach to occupational therapy is? Yeah. So um, a top-down approach is different than what many OTs probably use, which is obviously bottom up, which sounds silly, but that's more bottom up is more focusing on performance components. So like deciding someone doesn't have the um, coordination to do something and then going ahead and working on coordination where top down is really focused on, in this case, the student performing 
the occupation. It's based on what is important to the to the student, and it's also strength based. And so it's occupation is both used as the um, as the assessment, so observing the student doing exactly what you know what they want to do, and then also used as a means of improving that performance. I love that implementing occupation as an ends and a means of of therapy. That's really you know the crux of what what OT is meant to be. Um, are, are there any other reasons why you think it's so important to use a top-down approach to intervention, especially when working with school-aged children? Yeah. Um, one of the biggest differences I've seen as I've kind of changed my approach is, you know, not waiting for um, a student to get strong enough to hold their pencil so that they can write or waiting for a student to um, be able to, to form the letters so that they can participate in writing in school. So thinking about the modifications that can be done to help the student be more successful, whether it be with a task or the environment. I love that. I love that. Those those person and performance factors are so important, but it's really refreshing to hear how our focus should really always be on the occupation and, and helping our clients participate. All right, Laura, what would you say is the overall objective of this P4P guide? That's a good question. So I created co-op principles for participation, um, really from what I need I saw in the literature, as well as just from personal experience and speaking with peers, um, other school-based OTs. Um, And I feel like school-based OTs have heard a million times that they need to utilize evidence-based practices, um, specifically that they need to provide push-in services in the natural environment, um, but they really don't know how to. So really a top-down approach um, is essential to providing evidence-based practice. And this guideline, of course, uses the principles of co-op in order to help um, a school-based therapist provide a top-down approach. I love that objective. And I love how you've used all your expertise and experience to really develop this guide. Um, How is it all organized? Can you break that down for us? Yeah. So um, what I did is I used the... the, um, principles, the co-op principles, um, to kind of, to frame in the, um, we'll talk later, I think about the, um, you know, the, the, the specific sections, but the first section, um, is, um, client-centered and occupation-focused. So in order to be evidence-based, we need to be client-centered and occupation-focused. And in co-op, this starts by selecting a goal that the child needs to, is expected to, or wants to do. The next section will be on um, problem solving. So using the um, cognitive strategy of goal plan, do check, and the dynamic performance analysis, which is observing actual goal performance in the natural environment. And then the next section would be um, guided discovery. So um, this is just the learning, um, the way that we, the teaching method in in co-op. So um, it's kind of a combination between direct instruction and and discovery learning. The next part is enabling principles, which are the enabling principles, which is really the thoughts that you have as a therapist as to how you're going to help or how you're going to facilitate learning with this student. The uh, next section would be parent or supportive adults. So this is essential to co-op and also um, to being effective in the school, right? To involve an adult in this, in this, um, in your intervention. And then the final one is intervention format, which is really, um, the goal, the with the goal being to provide services within the natural environment. I love that. I love that. I think a, a lot of emphasis is put on how practitioners can learn to apply co-op in their interventions, but it seems like your guide is set up to help practitioners 
really use co-op on themselves, which can only be beneficial, I assume, right? Yeah, yeah, I I, I believe so. <laughs> it has it's worked for me. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Um, I can't wait to to learn more about P4P. Uh, how or in what ways do you see that these using co-op principles to guide OT intervention could benefit practitioners? I, you know, one of the reasons why I wrote this guideline, um, I was, first of all, I was able, I mean, I was incredibly lucky and um, privileged to be able to work with Dr. Politico, who um, created this approach so that I know, I knew that what I was doing was um, with fidelity. And so I, so that no one could come back later and say, um, you know, what right, what right do you have to say that this could be co-op, right? Um, so the principles, one of the things I, I thought and why I decided to do this guideline was that even as a therapist, if they could even choose one of these principles to start implementing in their practice, that would alter their, um, and I should say, transform their practice in ways that they probably didn't know needed to be um, changed or transformed. And I think that's, I guess, what I found when I started doing co-op. Am I making any sense? Absolutely. I think so. I think you're making dollars (laughs) and cents right now. (laughs) Um, Even just to hear you kind of describe the importance of using a a top-down approach and and outlining what the co-op principles are, it, it really clicks in that, yeah, it makes sense that this can be a great guide um, to OT intervention. Um, And, and is almost a little meta in that we're using an OT intervention designed for clients but also to help shape your own approach to, to practice. I was going to say, um, you know, one thing I, I thought through doing this is that I finally found a way to truly be an OT in the school setting. I know, um, you know, people have different experiences in different settings, but this is one way that I could actually, you know, assess um, client performance, intervene with occupation and with the goal of occupation, then reassess with um, client performance versus just, observations, which are, you know, obviously, um, you know, people want more than observations, right? And rather than performing um, tests that were looking at performance components that really didn't provide any information for me and couldn't be used as outcome measures. I love that. I love that. That's, uh, you know, uh, an obstacle that I would assume many practitioners run into. Um, So it's amazing that you were able to, to develop a solution to that um, and are preparing to share that in the form of this guide. Um, and, and as you mentioned earlier, the guide or the goal, my apologies, of Principles for Participation, this guide is best practice and evidence-based services to promote participation in school. Um, how else would you say that this model supports the implementation of best practice and evidence? AOTA, right, our national organization, um, calls for us to be client-centered, occupation focused, strength based, um, and support the ability to provide services in the least restrictive environment. That's part of the school that, you know, includes the school setting, um, applicable across settings and includes collaboration with the student. Um, and then evidence-based interventions, what's come out of the literature for that is that the best um, approaches are top down. They include child selected goals. They're included in the real life context. There's repetition of tasks, scaffolding of the task, and the child takes part in the problem solving. And honestly, um, what better place in the school where you're actually 
in the child's environment that, than to, to view something like this, right? Where you can actually do these things. Absolutely. And I'm remembering in, in looking over your guide, there's a table um, that really illustrates how this guide um, really picked like bits and pieces of, of best practice and, and implementing evidence and fulfills kind of all those goals of, of AOTA's vision and also the goals of, of evidence-based practice. Did, did you want to speak any to that right now? Yeah. So actually, that's what I just um, was looking at when I read over those for you, just so that, you know, because co-op is, um, and I, you know, in the middle of those two, two things where I just wrote, you know, I just read off those, that column is co-op so that it is client-centered. Um, there's really no way to do, I mean, you can't call it co-op if you're not client-centered, right? Um, you, you use occupation, so it's occupation-focused. Um, yeah, I think we can go ahead and dive into the, the plan section now of, of this guide. The seven key features are practice principles that can be used in inter- intervention with school-aged children. Are those the same seven principles that you mentioned before from co-op? Yes, they are. Yep. Perfect. How does you, uh, the the practice guide really frame these principles and help practitioners to implement them into their practice? What I try to do is um, put them in the you know the what, why, and how. Right. So you know, what, it, what is this particular principle? Like, why is it important? And then how do I implement it? So like, for instance, for client centeredness, you know, going over that it's, you know, what it actually means to be client centered, right? So that the, the student needs to be actively engaged, they need to be working towards a meaningful goal, and they need to be actively involved in a problem solving, which I think, as, um you know, before I learned about co-op, I thought I was client centered, and it was more I think I was thinking, oh, I know what this kid likes. I'm doing things that they like. That makes me client-centered where as um, I was obviously missing pieces of this. And I think uh, striving to be client-centered is something all practitioners are trying to do, um, but it makes a lot of sense to have um, a more in-depth guide of kind of the steps you can take to be more client-centered because that is a term that gets thrown around all the time and can be easy to shrug off be like yeah like it is important but it's helpful to dive deeper and really analyze like what does it actually mean to be client-centered what can you do as a practitioner to, to do so um, so I love that that's included in your guide and we don't have time really to go over all these principles but I did want to ask you to go more in depth on maybe one or two um, and and how your guide frames them to to help practitioners implement them. Uh, maybe could we begin with dynamic performance analysis? Can you speak to us about that? Dynamic performance analysis is really a. I think when some people think of it, they might think of just our our general task analysis as OTs or activity analysis. But really, dynamic performance analysis starts with a goal. So the student would say hey, I want to learn how to tie my shoes, which is I'm going to use that as an example because many kids need to learn how to tie their shoes, right? So you have an idea, um, you have their goal, you kind of come to an understanding of what what tying their shoes means, right? Because sometimes we hear that we get a picture of what tying their shoes is going to be, whereas the student has a, a different feel for what that means. For di- dynamic performance analysis, you observe the actual occupation and you tr- you do not intervene whatsoever. And um, one of the other things about dynamic performance analysis or DPA, I'm going to start calling it DPA, much simpler, is that you you want to see it in the environment that it's going to be performed. So 
a great place to start for DPA would be in the hallway, right? So a kid's shoes are untied, watching them, how they, how they tie their shoes in the hallway. And then you use your observational skills, right? Your knowledge as an OT and look for the breakdowns. You're looking at the student, the task and the environment, and also the combination of what, what might be impacting the student's ability. You're thinking, are they, they really want to tie their shoes? Are they motivated? Or do they know how to tie their shoes? Right. Um, Going kind of going back to see, you know, what, what is the breakdown there? We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show, improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field? Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description and support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. Thanks for, for giving us more of an overview of DPA. Um, wh- what other principle can you kind of give us a more in-depth example of? Yeah, well, um, the next one I wanted to give you um, an idea of is guided discovery, because you really can't do, they, they go hand in hand, right? So as you do this DPA, you you see that uh, there's a breakdown. Um, maybe um, I'm just thinking of kids. I know commonly kids will will kind of let go in the middle of tying their shoes. And so you'll say, well, you know, like, so you use guided discovery. And what you're doing then is rather than saying, hey, um, student, the reason why you can't tie your shoes is because you're letting go in the middle. And like, you know, I think a a typical, you know, reaction for me in the past might be to go hold their laces, show them how they have to hold them, and then help them figure out how to do it from there. Whereas instead of um, the OT being the expert at this time, you allow the student to be the expert um, and to make their own discovery. This will helps promote their the sense of control and confidence. And so DPA is an iterative process, right? So you you do it, help the student kind of discover what's going on and maybe come up with some solutions to that. And then they go back and they they try it again and they evaluate, you know, how that went. So the DPA is really the heart of the, the goal plan do check of co-op, which is the goal is tying their shoes. The plan is, is, is kind of coming up with after you've done the DPA, after you've done some disco- guided discovery, coming up with a plan that the student's going to try. And then the check is trying to see if that problem solving strategy they came up with is working for them. I love that so much. Thank you. And Guided discovery truly is to me one of the most empowering principles of of co-op. Um, but I also think it takes a lot of patience and and constraint as a, as a therapist and not just rushing to show someone you know one way to solve their problem, but encouraging them to take the time and reflect on what they're doing and come up with their own solution, which in the end leads to a lot more carryover. Um, and and follow through because it was something that they thought of on their own. So thank you for that that description of both DPA and guided discovery. And I mean, I think if you don't mind me saying, I think it really it really is the also guided discovery is to me the um, like you said like one of the um, greatest things about co op, but also the hardest thing. It is you know we're so um, as OTs we so want our students you know our clients to succeed right we you know we like. We might tilt the paper a certain way. We we pick the perfect pencil for them. We 
maybe throw a slant board on there, whatever we do to get them ready. But then the student doesn't know why they were successful at that time, right? They, they, and then when they're not successful, when you're not there, they think, whoa, there, I need uh, Mr. Brandenburg, right? To be there with me to be successful. I can't do it rather than having them come up with those ideas on their own. That's such a great point. How much more powerful can our interventions be when we're encouraging that follow through and helping, you know, clients truly be more independent, even without us there? I love that. And also, thank you for saying my last name correctly. A lot of people mix that up. <laughs> Lucky guys. We're now to the do section of this guide, the principles in practice, Lara. How would you say that practitioners could implement the principles of this guide for implementation into what they do? What what advice or recommendations would you give them? Like I um, said before, I think really the, the biggest difference, if you really want to be um, more top down and really want to try to use these principles, is to start with, with the goal, right? So whether you use the, the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure, the COPM, to um, help the student come up with some goals or an occupational profile, you have to start with the goal first rather than to start with um, a series of tests. So once you've determined, once you've determined the goal, then you do the DPA, right? Then you observe the student with the, um, doing their, their activity, right? Whatever they've chosen, whether it's handwriting or tying their shoes or getting ready in the morning, you know, getting all their stuff in there so they can get into the classroom. You observe the actual performance. That's when you start planning that how you're going to help the student guide them to some um, through the problem solving process, right? After that, I, you know, I've chosen to um, record a student during the DPA just so they can see because you know when they're engaged in the activity, it might be hard to see what's going on. So I've recorded so a student can see. However you need to um, do it so you can help the students see their the breakdown and then start working on those breakdowns, guiding them to, um, to solutions. And then, then, then they, then they try those solutions out, right. They try those, those things out and then you check to see how it went. So I, I don't think I said it explicitly enough. It's, you know, it's the goal plan do check, right. So the goal is the child, they have the goal, you observe it. And so then you do some guiding to figure out what kind of a plan might work for the next time. And you record that in a way that um, makes sense to the student, whether, whether it's pictures, whether they write out a plan, whatever it is, they follow it. And then they are the ones who decide like, did that work or not? Like, is that, um, did you meet your goal? And that would be the check part of it. Absolutely. Thank you, Laura. I, Honestly, can't say enough good things about this implementation guide. I think an, a broad issue within OT and medicine in general is having a lot of evidence, but not having a lot of resources available to guide how practitioners can really implement that evidence. Um, and that's what you've done is kind of provided this guide of how to implement co-op. Um, with recommendations and, and examples and strategies. Um, and me, especially being a, a newer practitioner, I feel like it's just exactly what I've been wanting is is implementation guides that, that can help me really learn how to analyze, you know, theories and approaches um, and implement them into to what I do um, to provide a higher level of service and intervention to the clients that I see and really care about. Yeah, you know, and um, I just thought I'd, I'm sorry to jump in, but um, to say that really, I think when even when you read those research articles, 
they don't always apply to exactly the kind of client you're seeing or in the setting you're seeing. So the other um, important thing about co-op is it really does give you the opportunity to collect your own evidence in the moment, right? So you do something, um, you know, it's part, it's in the guideline, but you do something called the PQRS, which is the performance quality rating system. Um, You basically, when you're doing the DPA, you provide a score for this, you know, in your student of how, how well they're doing on that goal that they stated. Right. And so then after you've done the, um, the intervention, after you've gone through and you've done the DPA and they've come up with plans and they've done it, then you can reassess with the PQRS. And so you can actually gain your own um, evidence as to whether or not what you're doing is working. I love that. I love that. Taking it even step further and uh, gathering your own evidence. Um, this sounds like such a great guide to help encourage uh, evidence-based and evidence-informed um, intervention. Uh, Laura, I want to ask you now if you could share an example of how using the process outlined in the guide has led to a positive outcome for you and one of your clients. Yeah, so this was hard to come up with just one one client or one student. I'll share with you about one of one of the first kids I used co-op with, right? Um, this is a student, and I think many school-based, and any parent anyway, right, or anybody who works with kids would know how tricky it is to teach somebody shoe tying, right? Particularly when you see them for 30 minutes once a week, maybe in the hallway, hopefully in the classroom, you know, wherever you're seeing them, it can be so hard to teach someone um, shoe tying and have it stick. So I had a student who I had probably worked on and off for, with shoe tying for two years. Um, so anyway, I had a student and he, you know, he kind of, he hit that point where he really wanted to tie his shoes. Right. And so we worked on it. Um, we did, we did the DPA and I can't remember exactly what his breakdowns were, but we worked through that and we came up with a plan. And for this particular student, he um, also has some language challenges, right? So he's a English language learner. And then on top of it, he gets speech and language therapy for just language concerns. Right. And so he put um, this plan into his own words and like to you and me, we, we would probably never know that that, you know, we wouldn't understand it, but his words, um, he put the steps in there and then we would, we would get it at the end of the half an hour. And we'd, he, he, you know, he was tying his shoes, he left, and then he would come back the next week and he still didn't do it. But then we went back to his plan. Did you follow, you know, did you follow your plan? Hmm. No, I didn't, I didn't do that. So then you go back and you follow that plan. And then he stopped me in the hall one day, obviously he was very excited because he tied his shoe. And he, what he said to me was, you know, I was, I kept thinking about it in my brain and then I knew how to do it. So I, I like to share that example because part of something that we haven't talked about too much during this time was the plan and being in their own words. So sometimes I think as adults, we think that we're, you know, we're using the best language for someone to understand something or, you know, we, you know, we know how to do it. Whereas to a, a student, right. And especially maybe one with, with language impairments or language challenges, it doesn't, it's not meaning to them what it's meaning to us. Right. So putting it in his own words, helped it to click in his brain. And then he's, um, you know, he's always remembered how to tie his shoes from that day forward. That's such a wonderful example of true and pure client centered practice. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. Is, is there any other examples that you'd like to share at this time? Um, I can, you know, I can share one with one I haven't like completely resolved yet, because I think 
what's nice about this, that happened to be a student that I saw directly, right? I saw him, he had IEP minutes for OT. And I think oftentimes his OTs were pulled aside to help a student who doesn't, maybe doesn't have an IEP or doesn't, um, is never, you know, is not going to qualify for services, right? Recently, I um, had the opportunity to work with a, a young lady who's in fourth grade who um, is, has a name with uh, um, the letter Y in it, right? And so she has been so frustrated because she, she wants her Y to look different. And the teacher has tried doing um, practice sheets and things like that, you know, practicing, showing her how to do it, doing all of that but there's been no change. And so what I did last week is I, you know, I watched her write her name and we also um, talked about like what, you know, what does she want her why to look like? Right. So kind of showing her some of the different whys that are out there, right. The kind of curvy why or the, or the, the two straight line, you know, the, the standard kind of two slanted lines that meet um, why? And she determined she wanted the pretty standard why, right? The short little line and the long line. And even though she could do the curvy why, and that would make her name, that was, your name is something that's super, that is, um, represents who you are, right? So she did not want the curvy why, even though she could do it. That, so that was her goal. She wanted that why to be the way she wanted it to look. And then what I did is I just recorded what she was doing. So I, I watched her and noticed that what she was doing was was doing um, the lines in a like a different sequence than most people would do, right? Or that I, you know, that many people would do. And it was uh, ending up with it basically being like a reverse image of the Y. So what we did is we watched different people make, make Ys. And then she's, right now what her homework is, is to look and see how her Y looks depending on whether she makes the short line first or the short line second. It's a wonderful illustration and example of applying those co-op principles. And, you know, you're letting her look at these videos of whys. As a practitioner, you're not just sitting there saying like, oh, okay, you want to make a straight line why? Like, this is how you do it. Like, let's practice it for, you know, 10 repetitions. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're encouraging her to use kind of a higher level of cognition to explore her options, make a decision on her own, and then apply it, um, which is just truly wonderful, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, she's ha- she has great teachers, right? These teachers have tried for years to help her make this why they're, you know, the way in a way that makes her happy. So um, I'm excited to see how it how it plays out. We'll, we'll have to get an update on uh, this client's progress later on. <laughs> All right, Laura, I I only have two more questions for you now. Um, The first being, what additional resources would you recommend to our listeners who want to learn more about what we've discussed today? Yeah, um, really, uh, probably the best resource is um, the ICANN co-op website. That is, um, so it's I-C-A-N-C-O-O-P website that has um will have links to the research and links to available workshops because what i do hope is that you know starting to use these principles looking at how these principles work will will encourage more people to go get trained in co-op so that they um can use it with fidelity absolutely thank you i appreciate that resource and i do just want to say i am interested in learning more about co-op and doing one of those workshops to be certified um, working in, in an outpatient pediatric setting. Thank you for all, all the knowledge you've already shared on that. And last question, Laura, we call this our golden nugget segment. 
If you could share one piece of knowledge or one recommendation to practitioners, what would you say? So my golden nugget would be to, um, you know, as an OT, think about what your goal really is. Like, what is it that, what skills do you want to gain? For me, it really was not this goal I had of working with these students. I could not find the answers in a, um, I look through, we all get those continuing ed things, like probably 10 a day, right? Um, could not be found there. Really, my answer was like going back to the theory and going back to the models of practice and just changing how it wasn't, it's not necessarily what I was doing that wasn't um, effective or wasn't as effective as I wanted, but was, but in the manner that I was doing it, kind of the sequence of it, right? So um, I just encourage everybody to kind of go back to the OT um, literature, I suppose, and just reground yourself in a model that works for you, right? I love that. That's a, a wonderful nugget, Laura, because I, I feel especially in, in practice, it's easy to, to forget about those foundational approaches to therapy and the foundational theories that, that support um, our profession. I think we can all brush up on, on those. Thank you so much for that nugget and for, for your time and, and sharing um, your work and your, your expertise today. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications.